Welcome to Magic Weirdos, an audio drama series about arcane goofballs and their many, many problems. You're listening to Season 1, Pockets. Chapter 1. Five Strangers Meet at a Trampoline Park. The first of the prisons was filled on October 10th, 1988, just outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was 13 minutes past 2 a.m. Natalie Gillum flicked her cigarette onto the gravel and savored the frigid air in her lungs. She knew she would remember this night forever. As expected, and much to her delight, her brother Ray had been moping all week. He continued to do so even as trucks arrived and the first prisoners were unloaded. There were blank checks straight from Uncle Sam that were there to guarantee the Gillum family would remain as rich as the Hursts so long as the world continued to spin. It was an abject victory for them both, but Ray still moped because Natalie had beaten him. Three years ago, when Ray was a big shot board member and she was barely in college, their father had issued to them a challenge. He'd always loved to pit them against one another. Competition, he had said, was the pressure that made diamonds. Their father had taken them into his office and shown them a videotape, surveillance footage of a man walking into a bank. As he waited in line, he dropped to his knees and screamed before erupting into a burst of violent flame that killed everyone inside in an instant. Two minutes later, however, the man was caught on an exterior camera, naked and fleeing, but very much so alive. The senior Gillum had told his children that their company, Gilco, had been hired to create prisons for such monsters. There, they could be hidden away from the rest of the world to run the course of their natural lives. He then challenged his children to find a place where such a prison could be hidden. And Natalie had been the one to find it. Technically, a grad student at UCLA had been the one to find it, but Natalie had been the one to buy it from him. Then, she used what he had created to find six more places just like it, with dirt-cheap land along U.S. Highway 11 from Louisiana to New York. Natalie had given Daddy an expansive network and proprietary technology. Ray had given him 100 acres of land just outside of Little Rock. He preferred Natalie's submission. Since then, their father's health had deteriorated past what money could fix. It was common knowledge that he'd be dead within six months, and everyone suspected that Natalie's recent contributions to the family business would be reflected thusly in the last will and testament. What are we waiting on? She barked. A man in a white jumpsuit handed her a yellow, smudged supermarket pricing gun. There was a small knob on top that was used to adjust both dollars and cents as well as gamma frequency. Ray approached from behind Natalie and lit a cigarette. You... Want to do the honors together, little sister? Natalie giggled, clicked the trigger of the pricing gun, and booped Ray on the nose with it. Look at that, you're worth a buck sixty-nine, how cute. Cut it out, I'm serious, Ray griped. Me too, Natalie said with a wink. Daddy never did teach us to share. She clicked the pricing gun again. Now, instead of a sticker, a beam of blue and purple light shot forth, slicing a bright hole in the space in front of Natalie. The prisoners were then escorted to the rim and shoved inside. All said, relocation took 20 minutes. When it was over, 
Natalie told her driver to wait in the car. She wanted a few minutes in silence to celebrate alone. Mind if I join you? Ray asked. He was holding a decanter of bourbon and two glasses. Go right ahead. Do you remember, Ray began, that time we were playing Monopoly in the treehouse? It was the first time you ever beat me at anything. And then I just swore up and down that I let you win. I do, Natalie laughed. I got so mad at you for being a sore loser that I threw the board into the lake. Well, I have a confession to make, Ray said. I didn't actually let you win. Natalie feigned a gasp. No. The siblings laughed together for the first time either could recall in years. I really am proud of you, Nat. Ray must have seen the number of zeros on the invoice to come around so quickly. She never would have confessed to the nervous excitement his pride made her feel. Thank you, she said. Don't thank me yet. Natalie then heard a click and was blinded by searing light. The last thing she felt before she tumbled forward into the sands of someplace else were Ray's hands between her shoulder blades. Present day. Go with me into the lion's den. Guide me, Florence, goddess of healing, as I venture through the wilds of this world, healing the sick and the wounded in your name and with your life. Hey, does that truck come with a blinker, Dignos? <sighs> Fucking dingus. <sighs> Where was I? Oh yeah, heal the sick and injured, yada yada yada, in your name and with your light, whether you want me to or not. Amen. Not like you give a shit. While we're performing miracles, just go ahead and grant me the ability to take a hint. As was always the case now, there was no response to his prayer. When Eric Williams burned a bridge, he did it well. Eric turned the steering wheel of his 1997 Nissan Altima into a parking spot. The vehicle hadn't had power steering fluid since the third year of the Obama administration, so this was no menial task. Flakes of padded filling from the steering wheel chipped off under his grip and scattered into the air like glitter, except without the shine and possibly toxic to breathe. Eric brushed the dust from his jeans and pulled a vape pen from the center console of his car, as well as a bottle filled with bright blue liquid, a recipe with the secret ingredient given to him by an old friend. Without looking, but with the practiced ease of a nurse administering a vaccine, Eric filled the tank of his vape pen. He glanced across the parking lot of the strip mall. At this point, there were far fewer storefronts than there were ghosts. Hollow shells, dressed with the faded imprint of marquee letters long fallen or removed. A barely living Dollar Tree. An abandoned GameStop, which had occupied the same space as an abandoned Blockbuster video before it. A thriving liquor store. And the piece de resistance. The only reason Eric ever bothered to venture to this side of town. The bounce for less bargain boing trampoline park. An ambulance mounted the curb outside, as if to welcome him, and a single EMT was loading a young boy, perhaps 12 or so, into the back. 
As Eric walked toward the ambulance, the cold winter air burned his lungs, and he felt the beginnings of an infection in his bronchial tubes. He took a small drag from his vape, just for him. All better. Soon, he heard the screaming, the guttural yell of a pubescent boy who hadn't yet learned to control the volume of his voice. Oh my god, her feet's supposed to do that! Oh, I'm gonna puke! <sighs> Try to stay still, kid, you're gonna be fine. Eric poked his head into the back of the ambulance and saw the extent of the damage. The poor kid's left foot was on backwards. There wasn't a guardian in sight. They'd probably dropped him off expecting that he would be safe while they enjoyed a $2 PVR at the Applebee's across the street. Yow! Eric said, taking another, much longer drag from his vape pen. The EMT jumped, hitting the gurney with his hip. This slightest of movements caused the maimed child to scream in agony. That looks rough, my dude. What happened? As Eric spoke, he exhaled a thick, blue cloud of vapor into the hold of the ambulance, directly onto the child's face. As they always did, the EMT absolutely lost his shit. What the hell's the matter with you? He roared, fanning his face. Do you want him to have a prosthetic foot and lung cancer? <coughs> a prophetic what? The kid screeched, coughing. Oh, you're right, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Don't, um, don't vape, son. All right, have a good one. He turned on his heel and took four steps across the sidewalk, stopping just short of opening the door to the bargain boing. He examined his faded reflection in the door. Dark skin, buzzed hair under a beanie. His jeans were on their last leg, but he managed to play it off as a fashionable choice. Apart from that, he wore a peacoat and a t-shirt that he had ironed and sprayed with Febreze after pulling it from the bottom of a hamper. Eric's smile faded when he stared at the diamond stud in his nose for a second too long. Another gift from the same old friend. Then came another series of sounds from the back of the ambulance. What the hell? Ah! Hey kid, you alright? It, it stopped hurting. What did you do? Huh. Well, my job here is done. Just, um, just don't do any kickboxing for a couple of days, alright? At the sound of a job well done, Eric pushed open the door and stepped inside. He hadn't expected the DJ to be playing the theme song from Scrubs but he wasn't mad about it. Inside the bargain boing, music blared. There were no fewer than a hundred different songs being heard all at once, but no two songs were heard by the same person. Standing on his stage, elevated in a booth high above an audience that couldn't even see him, Cooper Brake surveyed his arena. Only an L-shaped area around the perimeter was solid ground. There lived the lobby, a snack bar, a sock rental kiosk, and an area filled with tables and aluminum chairs. The rest of the floor was taken up by trampolines on several different platforms. There were free bounce areas as well as a section of basketball hoops for simulated dunks. The ceiling was high and painted entirely black, as were the rafters. A single sad disco ball dangled, unused, not quite in the center of the room. Outside light poked in from a hole near the central air vent, where birds accidentally flew inside the building at least once per month. Hands behind his back, Cooper read the children's lips as they avoided barreling into each other in midair. To him, 
The room was silent as the grave, save for their laughs, the pound of feed on canvas, and the creak of springs. They always play the best music here, one child said. I know, they've never played a song I don't like, said another. As he'd gotten older, Cooper had grown to prefer performing in this way. Unseen. Unknown. A conduit for someone else's music. It was better this way, he told himself. Cooper leaned down over his laptop and pretended to type something. He realized he had forgotten to plug it into the sound system. He panicked, afraid that he'd been caught. Then he remembered that Mr. Penn was the manager on duty today. He never stepped foot in the sound booth, or outside of his office for that matter, unless he was going out back for a smoke. Not only was Cooper's laptop not plugged in, but it had been dead for three months. It was a complete potato. He was saving up for another, but he was worried about how long he could keep up the pretense of his screen being asleep every time someone came into the sound booth. He breathed a sigh of relief and brushed the hair out of his face. The red streaks were fading a bit, and his silvery grays were shining through the black in more than a few places. It was almost time to touch up. All right, what's everybody listening to? He said to himself. Cooper closed his eyes. He tapped into the shared energy woven into the room and visualized the act of listening to music in the way that he was most familiar with, the most formative to him. A first-generation MP3 player, like the one his grandma had gotten him for his 16th birthday. He smiled, remembering that he had thanked her by absolutely ruining her computer with illegal downloads. Cooper liked to think that everyone had one of these brain pods, a magical box wedged into the gray matter of their brain that shuffled the songs stuck in their heads. He only turned it on for them. He glanced at a young boy, about six years old, turning a backflip. Heathens by 21 Pilots. Good choice, kid. He turned to a pair of girls at the basketball hoops. Both heard Billie Eilish. One heard Ocean Eyes, while the other heard Bad Guy. Badass, love it. And uh, what's this? A girl who couldn't have been more than seven was wearing a unicorn sweater and headbanging to Deutschland by Rammstein. Huh. Well, unexpected, but uh, good for her parents. Speaking of parents, most of them sat on the sidelines, hearing absolutely nothing, likely savoring the blessed silence for the first time all day. Cooper's concentration was broken by a shrill voice. Excuse me! He leaned over the edge of a booth to see a woman, well-dressed and in her early 40s. She was holding a young boy's wrist in a death grip beside her, awkwardly lifting his arm above his shoulder. That said, he seemed unfazed. His eyes were closed and he was nodding his head along with music that no one else could hear. Exactly what type of music are you playing for these children? Cooper played dumb. What, um, uh, what do you mean? The boy sang a line that made Cooper blush. He quickly accessed the boy's brain pod to see what was playing. WAP by Cardi B. And why can't I hear it? We really are taking over the world, Hazel Gutierrez said to herself. She couldn't quite believe that a bounce park in Tennessee was playing the theme song to a web series about Dungeons and Dragons. Not only that, but the song had been on a loop for the better part of an hour, and the kids were no less excited to hear it for a 30th time than they had been the first. This gave her a swelling of pride. At long last, a generation of geeks. The future truly was bright, she thought. Hazel desperately needed to catch up on commissions. She'd left her apartment for the first time in days, hoping that a change of scenery would help the flow of creative juices. Instead, she hummed along with Ashley, Laura, and Sam as she doodled a pencil sketch of a rattlesnake wearing a tutu. The final touch on the piece was a cute, sharp smile with a forked tongue sticking out, just as hers did whenever she drew. You deserve to feel pretty, Mr. McRattlehiss, she said. Another conversation caught Hazel's attention. 
She took a breath. She'd been able to tune out and avoid overstimulation while she drew. Now, all the commotion of the room was hitting her all at once. A girl, something like 12 or 13, was blushing while she talked to her mother. Mom, I can't go out there, she begged. What are you talking about? The mother responded, not looking up from her tablet. This shirt is too small, the girl whispered. It shows my stomach if I lift my arms even a little. She was right, Hazel thought. She looked like she'd just come from a fashion shoot, as did her mother. And this, this bra isn't good for jumping. Don't be ridiculous. You've lost enough weight. You look adorable, the mother responded. Go, have fun. Hazel gritted her teeth and clenched her pencil tighter, snapping it in half. She grabbed the purple cloth backpack at her feet. It folded and clattered in her hands under the weight of a dozen decorative pins. Dice, protest symbols, obscure references to podcasts, and a blue, purple, and pink flag. She rummaged through the bag as quickly as she could. She snatched a bound notebook with a loop on the side, which held a white crayon. She threw the notebook on the table in front of her and looked over her shoulder. No one was watching. Hazel always had a knack for choosing those special spots in public no one seemed to notice or venture toward. Now, she sat at a table that was pushed against the defunct Fruitopia machine. In the notebook, which was full of black construction paper, she used the white crayon to draw the baggiest, comfiest, slouchiest hoodie she could imagine. As she did, the space on the table in front of her began to glow and crackle, as if space itself was manifesting something. Within only a few seconds, the glow had dissipated, leaving behind the sweatshirt she had just drawn. It was soft and still warm, like it had just been taken out of the dryer. She snagged it from the table and ran toward the girl, who was slowly and awkwardly creeping toward the bounce floor with her arms crossed and her shoulders hunched. Psst! Hey! Hazel said. The girl turned. Here you go! Her eyes lit up with relief. She glanced toward her mother, who was sipping a sparkling water and tapping on her tablet. Thank you so much. I'll bring it back when I'm done. Hazel smiled. Don't worry about it. Seriously, I can just whip up another one. The girl tugged on the hoodie and sprinted onto the bounce floor, allowing herself to act like a child for the first time since she'd stepped inside. Out of the corner of her eye, Hazel saw a flutter of wings. She dodged as a pigeon flew inches from the top of her head, then perched on top of the drink machine. The pigeon was watching something intently. Hazel followed its gaze and saw a second pigeon, fluttering and panicked. She looked back at the first bird. It was... annoyed. Hazel grabbed her pencil and began a sketch. As she did, she wondered if Pigeon's eyes were always so... green. Giselle could feel that she was being stared at, but didn't have time to figure out who was doing the staring or whether they were onto her. She would just have to make sure to get lost quickly before animal control came to the rescue of a rare breed of green-eyed pigeon, and she ended up in a cage somewhere at some university. But first, she had to help this poor fool. She rolled her eyes as her new friend fluttered to and fro, chirping his panic. Oh dear, oh dear bird god, please just calm down, Giselle cooed. I can show you the way out. The sky is gone, how can I be calm? Giselle landed and perched on a rafter above the bounce floor, then surveyed the room for some kind of distraction. French fries, a water fountain, anything that might alleviate this poor creature's panic. She saw the person who had been staring at her, still watching. No, drawing. She was smiling, and her tongue was sticking out as she doodled. Giselle scratched her head with her wing, and the woman laughed, 
erasing a bit to resketch the movement. Shame, Giselle said. If only I could take the time to pose. Cooper scratched his head. He'd stopped the flow of music into the boy's mind, but he was still most enthusiastically singing about vaginas. Tyler! The boy's mother turned to Cooper and roared in his face. Turn it off! I, I, I did! Cooper cried. I mean, I, I wasn't playing that song to begin with. Or any other song. Clearly, it's silent in here. Is there a problem here? Droned the manager, Mr. Penn, as he approached the crime scene. On a typical day that Mr. Penn was in charge, Cooper might see him once as the building was being locked up. He wasn't much older than Cooper, a skinny, balding man in his early 40s with a perpetual five o'clock shadow. At his most alert, Mr. Penn's eyelids were only raised to half-mast. He wore a blue faded polo with an embroidered logo that read Bargain Boing. This man is playing satanic sex hymns for our children, and he's playing it at high pitches so adults can't hear, the woman stated, flattening the creases in her blouse. That's not true! It's, it's just his favorite song! What? said the mother. What? replied Cooper. The child had gotten the attention of several parents, some of whom were covering their children's ears. Others only stared, amused. One young woman approached the sitting area, sat cross-legged on the floor, and began to draw the confrontation in a sketchbook, like a courtroom artist, with her tongue sticking out of the corner of her mouth. Cooper locked onto the pattern of the pencil strokes. He heard a melody in them that he wanted to remember. The young boy then chanted a line in regards to a tuition payment in exchange for sexual favors. Several parents gasped, and Mr. Penn rubbed his forehead. Hey, he's, he's learning about our broken educational institutions, Cooper offered. How do I get out of this? What do I have to work with? His ears latched onto the sounds of the artist sketching behind him. No, that won't work. I need a distraction. Hello? Why are you yelling, ain't Lydia? Too late. Damn it! Focus! Focus! Cooper's neck tingled. He turned to see a hyper young girl standing on top of a table, draining the last slurps from a cup of soda. Her cheeks puffed out as the air rose from her stomach. Seizing an opportunity, Cooper put his palms together and twisted them in opposite directions behind his back before interlocking his fingers into one another. His vision faded into a translucent gray. Cooper saw his surroundings, not in physical shapes, but in sound waves and frequencies. He commanded the trembling waveform of the air leaving the small girl's stomach to pitch across the open space of the building and lodge itself firmly in the back of the raging mother's throat. In mid-sentence, the mother's self-righteous roars ceased. <coughs> the mother squeaked in embarrassment and covered her mouth, blushing. Well, that's enough excitement for one day, I think, said Mr. Penn in an exhausted monotone, grabbing a pack of cigarettes from his hip pocket. But Mr. Penn's smoke break was not yet to be, for that's when Cooper saw the blur of a naked body falling from the rafters. Why are you, why are you yelling, ain't Lydia? Aiden nudged the lobby door open with a sneakered foot and watched as the sole of his shoe, after months of threats, at long last separated from the cloth. He cursed under his breath. By the tone of his aunt's voice, now wasn't the time to ask for a twenty to go thrifting. And just where the hell are you? She had gone from screaming to smiling. Aiden could hear it in her voice. Whatever this was about, it was bad. 
I'm at the bargain boing, Aiden responded. I told you before I left. What are you doing there? I don't know. I, I like the music they play here. And what kind of music is that? Uh, right now they're playing Depeche Mode. You're full of shit. You're a liar and you're full of shit. Ain't no damn trampoline park gonna play that. Why would I lie about- Because you've gone to see that deadbeat mom of yours for drugs. Aiden gripped his phone so tightly that the plastic case creaked in his hand. I've told you a million times, just let me take a drug test. I don't test need if- you to take no damn drug test. I got all I need. A chilly wave settled at the base of Aiden's skull. What do you mean? You broke the rules. Did you not think it would cross my mind to call the factory and check the visitor's logs? Aiden ran a hand through his board straight red hair. His roots were already soaked with panicked sweat. His mom's birthday. She'd been clean for a year and away from her abusive douchebag of an ex-husband for ten months. Aiden had made a cake for her in home ec. They wouldn't let him inside the factory unless he gave his real name. He thought he'd gotten away with it. I... I, I don't know what you're talking about, he said after too long of a pause. You know the deal, Lydia said, muffled, like she had a mouthful of food. She was eating without him again. Mm. They said if I can't keep you away from her, I'll be relieved of my duties as your guardian. Aiden hated living with Aunt Lydia with a white-hot intensity, but he'd been through enough court hearings to know that this was in no way a good thing. Where am I going to go? Hell if I know, back in the system, I reckon. In that moment, Aiden didn't think his lungs would ever fill with air again. His eyes burned, and his mind went into overdrive. He had felt the same feeling several times before, but never this strongly. As the fire burned in his mind, time slowed, and he knew he'd never forget every detail of this exact moment. The faded skull bumper sticker on the pickup truck to his left, the stick of his four-day jeans to the back of his leg, the hum of the engine of an ambulance as it dismounted the curb and drove away. No, 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 please. I'll... I can, I can get a part-time job. I'll, I'll quit school and get a, get a full-time job. I just, I can't I can't do that again. Don't make me do that again. It ain't about the money. The state's paying me more to watch you than any Burger King's gonna pay a pimply 15-year-old. I just want my house back. No, no, please, no. Please, God, no. Yep, yep, yep. Get back here and get packed. Somebody's already here to get you. The call ended, and Aiden's phone screen shattered when it hit the pavement. Giselle knew that logic could never hold any sway over panic, but she tried nonetheless. The other bird was exhausted and desperate, and behaving even more erratically than it had been before. Please, Giselle said, allowing her frustration to show. Just land somewhere and we can talk. Maybe, maybe I can break through, he cooed. The bird swooped low as if preparing to attack whatever was blocking it. No, no, don't! The frightened pigeon gained speed and flew upward, never slowing until he slammed his head into the black ceiling. His wings and head went limp before he plummeted, clipping the unmoving disco ball and hurtling toward a stampede of socked feet, waiting to crush him to a pulp. Fifteen feet away and perched on a rafter, Giselle sped into action. She flapped in his direction, twisting and narrowing her body in order to gain more speed than his fall. Within a second, she was within reach of him. She extended her right wing, and from the corner of her eye, she saw a boy point in their direction. Giselle hoped the father hadn't seen both birds falling from the ceiling. Let's traumatize some children, I guess. Giselle released the bounds of her conscious thought for a millisecond. That was usually all it took for her to attune to the pulse of the earth, the life around her, the death 
beneath her, the water in the air, and the metal in the rock of the building. Where a gray wing had been only a moment before, centimeters from the unconscious pigeon she'd come here to rescue, there was now a slender, pale human hand. Giselle grabbed the bird, pulled him safely into her chest, and fell onto the mat of the bounce floor, naked as the day she was born. One of the first lessons of physics any child learns is the transfer of momentum on a trampoline. Eric had learned this lesson the hard way one Easter Sunday when he was six, and his cousin's bounce had sent him into a free fall onto the ground below, causing him to break his left wrist. Of course, it had healed almost immediately, but it still hurt like hell. He now watched as a woman fell from the rafters and landed on the trampoline beside a small boy. The boy was then launched into the air like a cannonball and slammed into the back wall. Help! He passed out! One child yelled. Help! She's naked! Yelled another. Is the ambulance still outside? Tell them to wait! What kind of place is this? Shouted the mother of the rapping vagina boy. Eric sprinted toward the accident, vape pen in hand. When his foot met with the bounce of the trampoline, he flashed back to that day, Easter Sunday, 1998. Sitting in his grandmother's kitchen, the distinct smell of macaroni and coleslaw. The music overhead changed to That Funny Feeling by Bo Burnham. Eric saw the woman first, naked and rail-thin, with matted blonde hair. She groaned and rose to her feet, holding a bird in her hands. She didn't put any weight on her right leg. Out of breath, Eric took a short drag from his vape. You all right? He asked, blue vapor already creeping out of the corners of his mouth. Fine, she grunted and pointed toward the circle of kids that had formed. She neither blushed nor covered herself, but her eyes were clear. She wasn't drunk or high or ill or anything, but those were not the questions to be asking right now. Unsatisfied, Eric looked at her leg. It was unshaven, pale, and her thigh was pockmarked with pink scars. Old wounds, go check on the boy, she demanded. As Eric shoved his way through the gathering of children, he noticed a splatter of blood on the wall, trickling downward from where the child had hit. There was a protective foam padding six feet high or so on the walls that surrounded the trampolines, but the poor child had bounced too high for it to have any effect. He now lay motionless, save for a twitching hand, with blood pooling around the back of his head. Fuck, Eric whispered. A couple of children gasped at the swear as he cradled the child's head in his hands. He was fading fast. His hair was soaked with blood and sweat that trickled between his fingers. Eric breathed a thick cloud of blue vapor directly into the child's face. After a moment, he felt the wound begin to close. The child's eyes then flickered open. Are, are, are you an angel? The child asked. Eric's stomach dropped, even though this was not the first time he had been asked that question. No, no, Eric said. Used to know one, though. Kinda. How could you kinda know an angel? No, I knew her well. She was kind of an angel. What are you doing to him? The manager of the bounce park was storming onto the edge of the mat. A vein bulged out of the side of his head, right below his receding hairline. His energy had shifted entirely. He was no longer the timid man. He was a man about to break. Why would you do that? He shouted again, with something between desperation and exasperation in his voice. Are you drawing this? 
Hazel was so wholly enraptured by the scene she was drawing that she didn't hear the manager approach in time to stop him from yanking the sketchbook from her hands. Hey, if you want to see, you just gotta ask, she said, repositioning herself beside him to explain her work. Ahem. This piece is an original Gutierrez graphite on college-ruled canvas, a slice-of-life work entitled Dichotomy of Manager. As you can see, the medium is intended to evoke the sense of a bored classroom daydream. With a graceful wave of the palm, she gestured to the focal point, a caricature of Mr. Penn with an enormous head divided down the middle. Half of the face was sleepy and sad. The other was exploding with rage, Hazel continued. The manager, who was brought to life by a most excellent subject, exemplifies the full range of negative human emotion, from apathetic cynicism to white male rage. Beside him are the characters I like to call Kaiju Karen and Cussing Tyler. You can tell the Karen is feral and animalistic, seeing as she is a dinosaur who breathes fire. The guy who had vaped into the injured boy's face was now standing behind Mr. Penn. What is uh, Cussing Tyler saying? Oh, of course, he's saying Weenacoochie, Hazel said with a flourish, and then pointed to a falling stick woman with breasts. And then, of course, the eye lands and rests here because of the tits. Ha, tits, stated one of the children. Mr. Penn slammed the book shut and threw it onto the ground, apparently forgetting he was, in fact, standing on a trampoline. The pages ruffled as it bounced back into Hazel's hands. Get the fuck out of here! Who? Cooper asked. Who do you think? The last thing Aiden saw was a blue pickup truck in a parking spot beside him. It had one of those detachable hood things on the back that made it kind of look like a van. What were they called? Everything had lost meaning. Like when you say a word too many times and you start to question if it's actually even a word. But this wasn't only words. It was anything and everything tangible. He touched the hood of the pickup truck and felt the temperature of the metal, warm from the engine. But it proved nothing to him. It was like seeing through an illusion. Aiden could feel every nerve ending in his arms and legs. Every hair follicle, the freezing sweat trapped in his peach fuzz mustache, threatened to burn a hole through his upper lip. He felt himself breathing, but he would have sworn he was choking, drowning. His vision blurred into doubles, then triples. He was so nauseous that he found himself wondering why he hadn't yet thrown up, but then he remembered that he hadn't eaten in nearly 24 hours. He rested his face on the cold concrete of a parking stopper. He imagined he was six years old again. In this glorious fantasy, he had a stomach bug, and Mom had put a cold, wet cloth on his forehead. He almost lost himself, but the shallow, quick expansions of his chest caused a loose piece of gravel to wedge between his ribcage, constantly reminding him of this horrible reality. He squirmed and writhed on the ground in hopes that the friction of his skin on the greasy pavement would actually distract him from whatever this pain was. It didn't. Miles away, he heard a door swing open. Footsteps. Voices. They stood out from the handful of other sounds. He rolled over and stared into the midwinter sky. Gray and dead. Holy shit. Female voice. Accent. Hey, dude, are, are, are you okay? Male voice. Hey, you're, you're not alone. You've got friends here. My name is Hazel. Female voice. A different one. No accent. What? What's happening to me? I'm hot and cold. Hey, 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 you're, you're having a panic attack. 
said one of the women, Hazel. Do you have any medicine you need to take or anything? What are you doing? A male voice asked. Aiden looked for the first time. He only saw the woman who was sitting beside him. She was Latin. She had large, kind eyes and purple tones in her hair. You're in good company. I've had more of these than I can count. Just try to breathe with me, okay? Do you want me to hold your hand? <laughs> Please? She did. Aiden felt comfort that was almost euphoric. No stranger had ever been that nice to him. But the panic and the pain were still so strong. He felt every emotion he'd ever felt. And they started battling with one another. The fear grew stronger, but so did the feeling of not being alone. What was that called? Did it even have a word? Whatever it was, it grew stronger too. He felt something crack inside of him, like a glow stick. Hot tears filled his eyes, and something vibrated in his chest. Something was wrong, really, really wrong with his hand. Like lasers were inside his fingertips, trying to stab their way out. He felt the same sensation in his chest. His heart beat harder and harder, like it was getting his body ready to do something it had never done before. Aiden mustered every fiber of his strength to lift a hand in front of his face. Not the one being held, no, he didn't dare let go of that. Afraid he'd be swept away and drowned by some imaginary current if he did. He blinked away the sting of tears and sweat. A soft, purple light pulsed in his palm with his heartbeat and illuminated the veins in his fingers and his wrists and his arms. Back up, Hazel whispered to the others that Aiden couldn't see. Something's about to happen. No fucking way, a different male voice said. I know what this is. Try to make sure no one is watching. Why? 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 Aiden stammered. What's happening? It was as though the agony flew out of his body and became something different. Aiden's limbs and back tensed as he watched a purple beam shoot out of his chest. It terminated a few feet overhead and then formed an arc in the sky. No, a full bubble. It pulsed and crackled with energy that washed over Hazel and the others like a black light. She squeezed his hand tighter and smiled, but her eyes were very, very sad. Yeah, you're in good company. In a blink, the bubble was gone. It took with it a chunk of parking lot, half of a pickup truck, and the five strangers somewhere else entirely. Here, it was night. The air was thin and cold. There was no moon, nor were there any stars. Before he tumbled down a mound of dirt and cracked pavement like the chocolate shell over an ice cream cone, Aiden saw a glimpse of a tower in the distance, with nothing but a vast expanse of desert in every direction. This concludes Chapter 1 of Pockets. Thank you for listening to Magic Weirdos. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. Stay weird. The world depends on it. <laughs>